Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone, wherever you are. I hope it's a nice day. It's a beautiful day here. It is. We've got glorious, like almost fall weather here, and uh, now it's going to, but it's going to get hot again over the weekend. I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) We are both in Iowa, although about 30 miles apart right now. And Caroline, why don't you introduce our guest and we'll find out where she is. Well, I am pleased to do that. This is an amazing book, I can tell you that. And the author is Estelle Erasmus, an award-winning journalist, writing coach, and in-demand speaker. She has written over 150 publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, HuffPost Personal, Good Housekeeping, and Writer's Digest. She is all, excuse me, she has been editor-in-chief of five national magazines and hosts the Freelance Writing Direct podcast, an adjunct instructor at NYU, and frequent panelist for professional writing organizations. And I can see why. <laughs> and, she lives, <laughs> and she lives in New Jersey. Welcome to Writer's Voices. Thank you so much for having me on the program. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> and the title of the book that we're talking about today is <clears throat> Writing That Gets Noticed, Find Your Voice, Become a Better Storyteller, Get Published by Estelle Erasmus. So, and where are you? Are you in New Jersey today or are you elsewhere? I, I am in New Jersey. I'm at the beach today. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so that's one of the, the plus sides of working as a freelancer. And this book is primarily geared to freelance nonfiction writers, correct? Yes, but some of the tips and tricks about writing, uh, about essays could be translated into writing when you're writing a book. There's still the inciting incident with a book. So I think the tips and the tricks are translatable. I think so, too. I definitely agree with that. But the uh, if somebody wants to be a freelance writer, this yes. is this is definitely where to start. So, so tell us kind of your journey to becoming a freelance writer. Yeah. So I started out, I always loved writing. And as I talk about in the book, I also worked in a library when I was a teenager and uh, loved reading books. I was really a consumer of books and, and reading materials and all that. And, um, I ended up becoming uh, a PR person. So I was in public relations, but I was always seeing how they were working with people on the other side, which were the journalists and the people in media. And I thought that's something that I would like to do. And so I talk a little bit about my PR experiences, particularly with Shining Time Station in my book, which is a TV show based on Thomas the Tank Engine, and George Carlin was in it, and I was, I was publicity director, and so I had some really interesting experiences that I ended up writing about um, later on, and so I ended up working in my first publication, which was Woman's World Magazine, which is 
a publication that is on the newsstand and they have, I think, 4 million circulation, very big circulation. And I was in the beauty department and that's how I started. I had seven deadlines I had to do a week. I had my own, (laughs) yeah, I had my own beauty. I had my own beauty tips column and I learned what I call what what is known as service journalism, which is journalism sharing tips, tricks, advice and ideas to improve your life, to enhance your life, to add information, which really is what my book is. It's a service piece because I share so many tips and tricks in 352 pages and what I call Estelle's Edge, which is my pro advice almost on every few pages. Absolutely. And this is hard won advice. (laughs) You learn from experience and you're just giving it away. (laughs) Yes, well, you know, I distilled all my experience and knowledge from being on both sides of the publishing wall. So I was magazine editor-in-chief, you know, after Woman's World, I went on to other publications, to American Woman, where I was senior editor, and I was involved in, I still had columns, I was curating content and reading books to see which would be excerpted in the, in the magazine, we had a lot of that, um, I kept writing beauty, I kept writing health, I kept writing I started writing book reports for the magazine because the magazine was a small publication, which means that the staff was small, which really was an early precursor for what later became digital, where editors do everything. So I learned, you know, I I talk about later in the book about you don't know when your bad luck's your good luck, but because I was with these small staff publications after Woman's World, which was a big pub, big staff publication, I ended up doing everything and learning everything from working with art directors to doing photo shoots to booking models to writing cover lines, to editing, mm-hmm. to doing developmental and copy editing, which is the the line-by-line editing, and putting the decks, which is the little um, descriptions of what a piece is going to be. And I consider myself a title queen because I had to do cover cover lines. And so my students love coming to me with their kind of maybe pedantic titles, and I Make it more exciting. <laughs> so, yeah, the, because the uh, the cover blurb or cover, what what is it actually called? Because it's not necessarily the title, but it's sort of a very short thing about yeah. what the article's about. The headline. The headline. Okay, so that's kind of morphed into what we refer to as clickbait now, right? <laughs> that's what yeah. what got people to pick up the magazine and open it and read it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned clickbait because Noah Michelson, who's the editorial director of HuffPost Personal, who um, wrote my cover blurb full of invaluable tips and tricks that won't just get you results, they'll get you published. He talks about clickbait 
And he says, clickbait is only clickbait if you're not promising, if you're not delivering on the promise, right? If you're delivering on the promise, it's not clickbait. You're not going to go away. You're going to read the article. So my whole premise is writing that gets noticed and how to do that. And how do you get noticed? First of all, the editor is who has to notice you because they will give you the assignment, whether it's accepting a pitch from you or whether it's accepting an essay that you've written that has attracted their attention. And I talk about in the book how many ways you can do that through the headline, through your writing, through the way that you start right in the action, if you're or the way that you're showing your credibility. If it's a pitch, you know, the action for an essay, the, a pitch would be set showing. It's kind of a confidence game. You have to show that you are somebody worthy of the editor putting their confidence in. Absolutely. So what and when did you decide, you know, what made you decide to go from being on the staff side to being on the writing side? So I had been the editor-in-chief of five publications. So that was uh, Woman's Own. And then I launched the publication for her chat called Body by Jake, which was a fitness magazine. You know, Jake uh, Steinfeld, he was, you know, don't quit. He was the big guy who said, don't quit. So I launched that publication. Um, that didn't last that long. There were some business issues. And so that changed, but that was with Hachette. And then I launched a publication called Esthetique, which was a beauty publication that focused on dentistry and skincare and plastic surgery and all that fun stuff. And then <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then I went to a more serious yeah, right. topic. A serious. Then I moved to a serious health topic for the American Breast Cancer Guide. And so, um, all along, I had been writing for other publications. So I had been, as well as a magazine editor, I'd also been a freelancer, and I wrote for about health, a lot about health and beauty. I wrote for Let's Live, and I wrote for Energy Times, and I wrote for Longevity. That's a magazine that's long defunct, and New Woman. And so I was building my platform. I mean, they didn't call it platform. (laughs) (laughs) You're building your credentials. (laughs) I mean, I've been in this for three decades. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was no Twitter. It was all print until digital came a little later. And like, uh, I think in the 2000s or late 90s. And so I was also in the early uh, digital. I wrote for iVillage. I wrote for Music.com. I wrote for Livestrong. So there were a lot of publications. And my focus at the time was health and beauty. And then I became the a columnist for First for Women, which is also another big, it was the big newsstand publication at the time. And um, so I did the mind-body column for them, and I did a fitness column, and then I had a column for Let's Live. So I kept the writing going, 
But at the same time, I also started teaching at NYU for um, writing about magazines. And that was back in 2000, in the early 2000s. And then, as I talk about in the book, I had a, uh, a change of life because I got married in 2005. And then I decided to have a child, but I was dealing with um, infertility. And so I changed careers. I went into medical education because with publishing back then, I don't know if it's the same today, but I was staying in the office till nine at night and then I would go to an event and then I would go home and then I would start all over and I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. It was really enjoyable and it was really fun and it was maybe back in the glory days of magazines. So it was, it was a cool situation. So I ended up, um, going into medical education and working with physicians and learning how to use, sources and resources such as PubMed and Medscape and learning how to really understand studies, which really helped me a lot when I decided to go back into publishing because I had an understanding and a skill set that I had added to my traditional journalism background. And that really helped when I continued writing health pieces as a freelancer for um, for places that uh, that had me write that, like Zweivel.com, and um, there was another magazine. It was a health magazine. I can't remember now. There's so many. I've written for over 150 publications. Oh, my goodness. And then I went back into, uh, when I decided to go back into publishing, like my daughter, had grown a little bit. It was back in like 2015. And then I started by getting into Marie Claire. And from there, I started writing for other publications. And, um, and, and then I was teaching how to write um, for Writer's Digest. And I've been a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors since 1997. And I ended up running, being the chair of the conference. They do an annual conference every year. And so I was the chair of the conference in 2016. And that led me to other opportunities. And I just really loved just getting really ensconced in my industry once again. Well, which you certainly have done. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Estelle Erasmus, author of Writing That Gets Noticed. And when you sat down to write this book, what did you want to accomplish, and how did you decide what – I mean, there's such a broad topic. How did you narrow it down to fit into one book? Um, so I – you know, one of the things that service journalism helps with is to structure your writing. And I talk a lot, a lot about that in the chapter four in my book called At Your Service of how I framed ideas. And so I use the same premise in setting up the structure of my book because I knew that 
I wanted it to be very useful. I wanted it to have a flow. And I wanted to include everything that had been helpful to me from idea generation and incubating ideas and where to find them to how to develop your voice, right? A lot of people aren't sure how to do that to how to write essays and what kind of formats you should use for writing essays to how to pitch and a whole bunch of pitching best practices. And what was really important to me, as somebody who had written the All About the Pitch column for Writer's Digest for two years, where I broke down and analyzed pitches to show the reader what worked and why, I wanted to use that same premise in my book when it came to essays. So I took a modern love essay from William Dameron who wrote this brilliant essay after uh, 365 uh, or 364 haircuts and marriage changes and, um, and, and broke it down about why it worked in every paragraph. And um, I also wrote, um, and Julie Fraga, who is a very widely published writer, but she's also a former student of mine, I took a piece that she had written and I set up the premise of like what makes an essay work and how you can do it from the beginning to how you should start to how you should create your narrative arc, which is a beginning, a middle and an end to premises that I use called one of them to ending called the circle back technique, circling back, which is pulling in something from the beginning. Um, I also shared uh, Captain America in a turban, a provocative piece by Vishajit Singh that appeared in Salon, and I broke that one down as well. And then I talked about, um, you know, pitches and I analyzed them and I said exactly my formula of what makes a pitch work. So what will make a pitch land? And then there are so many people who are really in the dark when it comes to what happens when you get a contract. How do you handle that? That I knew that after I shared info on service and essays and pitching, I would have to cover, you got the contract, here's what to do. And I wanted to be very specific, like what if this goes wrong? Here's how you have to handle it. So for example, I give an example of, uh, let me find, so I'll say, you know, what can go wrong? The edited version of your piece contains edit errors, right? So I give like I break it down, which is again, service journalism. So my subhead is gentle pushback, correct the errors using track changes and include a comment explaining why changes are needed. And then I said, keep in mind, this is part of the editing process and gives you a chance to participate. But then this can next, the next level is your voice has been completely stripped out of the piece. So gentle pushback. 
ask politely if some of your voice or personality can be put back in, giving examples of the places where this is most important to you. Focus on having your voice come through at the beginning and the end of the piece. And I give specific examples in my book of students and how they have put their voices voice in the piece. And then I said, keep in mind, sometimes publications have very specific styles and voices. In that case, you can decide whether or not you want to keep your byline on the piece. And then finally, the the extremeness, right? The extreme event is your editor asks you to make revisions that are outside of the scope of your agreement. For example, asking for an article twice as long as specified or a completely different article than you agreed to. <laughs> right? And that does happen. I mean, people are can be very, uh, they can take advantage of writers and a big a big part of my mission is for writers to feel valued, to feel their work is valued. I've been on both sides of the publishing wall as an editor, as an assigning editor, as somebody who is widely published, and as somebody who helps, who guides their students to publication in top tier magazines and publications like the LA Times, the New York Times, Washington Post, Marie Claire, in style. Good housekeeping, vote, you name it. And so keep in mind for that one, you need to ask for a phone call to discuss it because that is something where an email discussion can go wrong. And if you are willing to make the changes, the extreme changes, you have to ask for additional payment. And so I break it down and I, ta- I, I take the reader's <laughs> hand. I take their hand because they don't know. A lot of people don't know. And this information is not widely available, especially in the day of so many online publications, some that just spring up at the drop of a hat. So you have to know what you're doing when you do it. That's my premise. Now, is your book focused primarily towards publications that still appear in print, although, of course, for many of them, their online presence is as important, if not more important. Or are you, do you also um, address online only publications? No, I, I, I talk about both in my book, and okay. I think both are important. So here's the, the sad truth about print. Uh, print is dying, because, especially general print publications. That's why we've seen the shuttering of Oprah. That's why we've seen the shuttering of what used to be called the Seven Sisters, I, you know, that they've become digital. Ladies Home Journal shut down, Red Book. The, these were all called the Seven Sisters. And that's because general publications are not going to fly because people are getting that information that they used to get in print online, in the news, in everything that they're going online. What is surviving is print publications like Writer's Digest because that's a niche that, you know, it's, it's a separate uh, focused uh readership, which is people who are interested in writing. And so those niche publications are going to survive. If you write about horses, there's most probably a print 
horse publication that you can write for. And so that is where print is doing well, but there are much more digital publications. And that's a different ball game because with digital, you have such, you do not have the space that print used to allow. Stories for print used to be three, four pages. Now with digital, you really shut it down. 800, 1,000, maybe 1,200 words, maybe. And so you have to get the reader's attention really quickly. And there's one more thing compounding that, and that is the attention span of people have changed so much from (laughs) 20 years ago. I think it used to be something like 10 seconds and now it's three so if you don't get and we see this in our in our kids and our grandkids right we see this in how they're stuck on the phone and if they're and they're swiping and if it's not going to be interesting they're moving on and so you have to i had a student who read uh, a piece and i helped her with the title why therapy is like tinder and she's a therapist and she wrote this piece. <laughs> and it's like you know swiping people like if they're not getting the immediate gratification they're moving on so you have to keep all of that in mind so i do cover both and my book is geared for anybody who wants to write who wants to write for publications who wants to learn more about the craft, working with editors, um, editor etiquette, I call it. And I feel that it's translatable. It's also tips and tricks for people who have been writing a while and want to get their platform a bit more elevated. And that's how you can do that. I'm a very big advocate of elevation and finding (laughs) finding ways to do that. And that's another reason that I created Freelance Writing Direct, which is my podcast that I talk to award-winning journalists and best-selling authors and assigning editors to get their tips and tricks that that everyone who wants to write and you know writing it's so interesting if you know how to write persuasively and you know how to write to make an impact and get attention and get noticed you can get your insurance claim taken care of you can write a good email in business you can do things in your life that can make a difference and so knowing how to do this I feel is a very translatable skill. It's not just for someone who wants to be a freelance writer. Anybody can learn something that they can use every day from your book. I I believe that. I do. (laughs) There is one general publication that it seems to me is really soaring. You said they're not going to fly. And I'm I'm curious to get your, your insight on why Vanity Fair seems to be succeeding. So Vanity Fair is niche. They really are because it's entertainment. It's entertainment. So uh, that not, is not so much. It's really general journalism. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking of variety. Yeah, yes, that yes. is fair. So that's um, one of the glossies that yes, um, that is yeah. succeeding. Um, I don't know as much about the changes in Vanity Fair, but. Um, 
I do think that they have digital as well. Now. Oh, they do. They Not, absolutely yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. But so it's, it's one of the to... things that I, it's funny, like yeah. a year or so ago, I was talking to a friend and he yeah. starts to say, he goes, you know, who's got the best articles right now? And I said, Vanity Fair. And that's exactly who he meant. It's like, wow. and we had, you know, just out of the blue, we both had come to find you know, that it had and long form, very long articles and very yes. in-depth. Yeah, long yeah. form is a different uh, animal. And yeah. there are very few publications that take long form pieces. So that's a very specific focus. And, uh, you know, Playboy used to be one of them that would have these longer no, they would have very erudite pieces. Yeah. They were kind of known for that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I I I was on a panel, I believe, for NYU with somebody who was working at Vanity Fair, and they were doing digital as well. And they talked a lot about the digital aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Playboy used to be considered the best place for short story writers best place to get published because they paid the most and yeah and they <laughs> apparently had a pretty broad um you know idea of what kind of stories they wanted you know so, yes yeah uh, absolutely uh you know i think that if you have a good story and there's a publication that wants a longer piece and you can you know, I think with longer pieces, you really have to have the credibility with the editor. So, for example, a lot of my students, maybe they start and they don't have clips, but if they have, um, you know, they can get in with an essay. It's easier to get in with an essay because an essay is in the execution. It would be unlikely that they could pitch a Vanity Fair or a place that takes longer form pieces because that is really also somebody has to have the credibility. They probably would have to have the clips. They would definitely need to have um, because it, it's the editor is putting a lot of faith in making sure that this article is going to come in correct so that they are not going to have to spend all their time fixing it because yeah. time is a tight commodity with editors today, whether it's print or whether it's digital. So, Caroline, every time that um, you and I got together over the past few weeks and I'd ask how, how you're coming on reading the book, and you always said the same thing. There is so much in this book. There's so much. So <laughs> yeah, there were, is so much in this book. <laughs> what were some of the things that that, um, <clears throat> that you liked the best, some of the things that you – because Caroline taught English in high school, and so she taught some writing and did a lot of writing and – uh, were you the yearbook advisor for the high school for a while? And um, so. I what, love that. Okay. Yeah. Well, th these questions that you have on page one of the, of the uh, thing is really great. Um, how does ethics impact newer writers when starting their career? What do they need to know to, uh, so they don't make a huge mistake? I can, I can imagine making lots of mistakes if I was going to try to do what you did i mean oh my gosh thank you well ethics is really important um the understanding that it's not pay for play 
right? Which is a term that they use that if you're going to write about something or some product or somebody, uh, you would be paid for it. That is not editorial. And I think that there is sometimes a misunderstanding and that creates an ethical issue for the publication or for the person who's writing a column or something like that. Um, I used to have a column for Forbes and I would write about um, gigs and people would be like, yeah, can you write about this and I'll pay you? And it was like, no, that is not what I do. And I think they really cracked down on it as well with people to make sure that that wasn't happening. It has to have a real validity for something to be in. And I think that, I mean, I, I still get emails all the time. You know, can you write about my company? Well, you know, I don't really write about companies anymore, but it's, it's very interesting that there is this, uh, ethical dilemma that particularly new writers in different spaces have to deal with. And there is absolutely a separation between church and state. The other thing is when you're writing for newspapers, they are very, very particular. You have to do any kind of disclosure. You can't use somebody as a expert source who is your friend or who is somebody that a company that somebody in your family works for. Uh, because newspapers have these really strict, strict restrictions. Now, some online publications might be okay if you say, I have a friend who is an expert in this area, but a newspaper won't allow it. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you yeah. you devote a whole chapter in to finding the experts and the sources for a reported story. So in this, in your book, you do talk about um, essay and memoir type writing, and then also reported journalism. And some things are kind of a combination, a yes. hybrid of the two. That seems to be one of your favorites is the, is the hybrid. I do. <laughs> I love the hybrid. I, it's, it's, starting to be known as just the reported essay, but I like to call it the hybrid <laughs> essay because for me, it's about the framing. So when I wrote the piece that went viral for the New York Times called How to Bullyproof Your Child, it was, I framed it around an experience that my daughter had being bullied uh, when she was a young girl in a play group and then how I did role play with her. And then I expanded the story to give expert advice from various experts in the bullying space and talk oh. and then ended it. Yes. With, you know, kind of how, what are the things to say and to do. And so I was able to combine reporting with personal. And I do feel that that gave it the ability that made it more noticed because people can relate. Parents particularly can relate mm-hmm. to this fear of what is, how do I deal with that? You know, and that's why when I came up with the title, How to Bullyproof Your Child, and I, I talk about that in the book about how you should include the title in the subject line of the email 
that you're sending to the editor rather than just say freelance writer pitch, say freelance writer pitch title, because that can get the editors get hundreds of emails a day. And so that can break through the noise. And that's what happened with me. And I do like that format. And actually, most publications, unless they do a lot of essays, are really focusing on the reported essay. Why? Because it can help solve a problem for the reader by providing information and expert advice. So it kind of does two things. It also creates the interest and the resonance by having somebody's personal experience surrounding the story. And thirdly, it's great for writers because it gets you get to put your voice in the beginning of the piece when you're personalizing it. Yeah. It makes it more fun to read and to write. Definitely. Yeah. So Estelle, why oh, don't golly. you um, <laughs> read a little bit from writing that gets noticed? Yes. I would love to. So I've shared a lot of the, the tips and tricks and I have tons in my book and Estelle's edge, but what I really love is I wanted to make sure New World Library is a publication that has a spiritual focus. And so I wanted to make sure um, that there was a chapter about inspiration because I feel that writers deal with the mental anguish. And I talk about rejection. They deal about what are they doing and how can they keep going. So here's what I wrote. And New World Library is your publisher. New World Library is the publisher, yes. So I said publishing is a long game. Sure, you can get quick viral hits if you are lucky and the timing is right, but those do not make a career. Sure, you can become a social media star, whatever that means, but again, that doesn't make you a writer. What makes a career is persistence, resilience, learning how to package and position yourself to break through the noise, an ability to pivot, a sense of humor, and more than a dash of inspiration. Creative visualization is the key to a life of purpose. While I was working in one of my first jobs at an advertising agency, I saw the book Creative Visualization by Shakti Gwan in the window of a New Age bookstore. I was hooked from the first sentence. Creative visualization is the technique of using your imagination to create what you want in your life. Reading about the power of the mind and the imagination introduced me to my inner world. It taught me that the key to change in any area of your life is to change your thinking because your thoughts can create your reality. That bookstore became my lunchtime destination. It was my new school, though I'd recently graduated from college, and the contents of its shelves became my new textbooks. I learned how to ask the universe for what I wanted while taking steps toward achieving it. 
With this added power, I started moving from a life of frustration and waiting into a life of purpose and excitement. How fitting that years later, my publisher for this book would be New World Library, the publishing company started by Shakti Gawain and Mark Allen. Shakti Gawain also said, what we create within us is always mirrored outside of us. Taking those words to heart, I developed a philosophy of living encompassing those tenets. Visualize your goals into being. Picture yourself the way you want to be in a new job or opportunity, feeling more fulfilled. Then try to feel the emotions you will experience when you achieve your goal. For example, before I met my husband, I imagined a mystery man's arms lovingly wrapped around me every night and feeling adored by someone wonderful. I visualized having a fabulous publisher putting out my book. Visualizing helps manifest your aspirations. Tell people what you want. The universe does not reward people who hide their light or keep their dreams and goals a secret. Molly Brown was the first movie character I saw who showed me that there is no shame in ambition, seeking love, money, or success, no matter what the world tells you. In the unsinkable Molly Brown, she says as an illiterate young girl, I mean more to me than I mean to anybody else, and nobody wants to see me down like I wants to see me up. Sound selfish? Maybe. But I've learned that there is no shame in true self-love that demands respect from others. In fact, it is the foundation of a healthy life and healthy relationships. You never know when your bad luck's your good luck. Think about it. Maybe you overslept, but because that happened, you avoided a highway accident. Or you didn't get the job you wanted, but that's why you were available when your dream job opened up. So don't rail at your bad luck, because it might be a rabbit's foot in disguise. For example, I never worked for the biggest magazines, and while I thought that was a liability, it ended up being an asset. After three years at American Woman, I became editor-in-chief of Woman's Own. Because it was a small publication, our circulation was about 200,000 and had a small staff, I learned much more about the nuts and bolts of producing a magazine than I would have as editor of a larger publication. It turned out to be superb training for the shift to digital where editors do it all. Catapult yourself outside your comfort zone. I wrote about reinventing yourself for a piece for Next Avenue. As I said in the article, learning a new skill keeps your mind smart and facile as you get older. Recently, I started podcasting and began taking tennis lessons. Other people take up mahjong or pickleball. I remember when I interviewed a former Tibetan monk for one of the magazines I worked for, he taught me self-healing energy work, a form of Reiki, which I now use anytime I have an ache or get a sunburn. I also used it to comfort my daughter when she was little and got boo-boos. Live in the present moment. This is the hardest rule of all for me, but it's essential. Even when I'm caught up in my writing, laser-focused on my computer or my thoughts, I try to make time for my daughter when she gets home from school. We talk and share the best parts of our day. That connection with her and my husband keeps me grounded. 
Get help to light your way. As you start to advance in your career, you can make huge leaps forward with help and motivation from professional instructors. You can take classes on how to pitch and on how to write personal essays like the ones I teach. Writing coaches can be your guide through the often rocky terrain of publishing. They can help develop story structure, teach craft, polish prose, keep you accountable, and yes, offer inspiration. Many, like me, offer line editing as well as developmental editing. The best coaches come with bona fide credentials and are experienced in the areas of writing you are interested in. To protect yourself when hiring a professional, always vet them first. Look for testimonials on their website. The ones to trust are those who use students and editors' full names for credibility. They should be widely published and have a good track record of helping their students get published. I also advise against paying huge amounts up front. Try to find people who have been involved in the writing and publishing industry for years and are connected to organizations and associations in a deep way that will help you. Practice gratitude. I'm a big believer in rituals focused on gratitude and goals. I blow out a birthday candle every year before midnight as an annual gratitude ritual, and it starts my birthday off with a special spark. I recommend you do the same for an inspiring start to your latest age or stage. Step one, I usually use a long white tapered candle to represent purity of thoughts, but this year I chose a green candle to represent growth. You can choose the color that best suits you. Step two, visualize a protective shield around you. I always imagine a column of white light surrounding me. Step three, as you light the candle, loudly tell the universe, or if you believe in them, your angels, what you are grateful for in your life. Step four, ask the universe what you want in the coming year. This part can include anything from a new car to world peace, better bylines, less combative relationships, or new love. Really, you can ask for whatever um, lights your fire. Step five, right before the clock strikes midnight or a few minutes before, focus your intention on the flame of the candle. Verbally summarize your asks and repeat your gratitude for everything you already have. Step six, I always end the ritual by saying out loud, thank you so much, so shall it be, and so it is, amen. Then I blow out the candle. Trust me, it works. Shakti Gawain once said, the more light you allow within you, the brighter the world you live in will be. I'm very grateful that I now have the power through this book and my teaching to change people's lives to the better. That is the true power of creative visualization. Oh boy! And oh gosh! Well, there's a lot of a lot of wisdom in there. A lot of Thank wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. I always say about my premise of teaching is you teach a person to fish. You no, you give someone a fish and you feed them for the night. You teach them how to fish and they can feed themselves for the rest of their lives. And that yeah. is why I wrote this book. And that is Writing That Gets Noticed, Find Your Voice, Become a Better Storyteller, Get Published by Estelle Erasmus. Something that caught my, my attention was this thing about getting ghosted. Could you explain that, being ghosted by yes. an editor? Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, like, editors are so busy today, and they have so much pulls on their time. And so 
editors are not only assigning or finding writers or doing social media. They might be looking for another job in publishing. They might have their own books that they're trying to get deals for. And so you really have to break through the noise to get their attention. But you want to be able to get there, get them to notice you. And I give several uh, tips and tricks of how to do that in the book. And I'll just give you a few here. Acknowledgement counts. Editors are people too. And so when you are emailing them, you can say, you can mention a pu- something that ran in the publication. If they're writers, often they're writing pieces for other places or something for their own publication, and you can mention their story. And that shows that you read the publication, that you're paying attention, and everybody likes to feel good. I mean, when I was editing for Narratively, if somebody emailed me and they said, I have this idea, I'm like, okay, I'll consider it. If they said, I love the piece, you recently wrote in the Washington Post, that makes me feel good. I'm thinking, (laughs) let me pay a little bit more attention to what they're sending. It still may not have been right for the publication, but we are human. And so you need to keep that in mind. The other thing is to start with a story, not a topic. A topic could be, I'd like to write about peace in the Middle East, or I'd like to write about depression in children. But you have to have a more specific spin. And I give the example in my book, instead of saying, I want to write about peace in the Middle East, you can say, I want to write about a situation where people on both sides of the religious wall, so they different religions, are banding together, the moms are banding together to do some education and they're creating uh, a structure and this is now spread to other neighborhoods where they're sharing their philosophy. And that's a story because you're saying the rabbi and the emirate are, are on board with it. And so you have specifics, you have anecdotes that you can use, personal anecdotes from different people. You have expert sources, the rabbi and the emirate. You have a something that's wider than just saying, I want to write peace about peace in the Middle East, and this is how you can do it. You write about what these communities are doing. And I talk about like having a community tie-in can be very helpful. Um, You know, showing that you have credible experts. And I talk about how to vet experts, how to find experts. If you're writing for a national publication about real estate, you're not going to say my uncle is a top realtor in my neighborhood. You're going to go to an association, the top association of realtors, which will often have a spokesperson or there will be media and, and press releases on their website. So every health issue has a corresponding association. For psychology, it's the American Psychological Association. For diabetes, it's the the American Association uh, for Diabetes. 
for uh, there's the uh, gynecology association. So you can go and look on the website to see the media releases and to see who the experts are. Another way to find experts that I talk about in my book is to go to publishers. The publishers will be talking about the newest books that are coming out written by experts. And often they'll have trailers or they'll have interviews where they reveal something that's going to be in the upcoming book. And you can use that to pitch an editor and get an editor interested. Um, I talk about timing. You can, a lot of editors have to fill the pages or online with holiday holiday-themed articles or essays. So you can make sure that whatever their deadline is or their timeline, that you're one of the first ones in there when it comes time for them to assign holiday pieces. You can look at, and I talk in the book about how to set up Google Alerts for subjects you're interested in. And one of the things I did is uh, Penny Marshall died in 2018, and she is the she played Laverne and Laverne and Shirley, and she was the producer for Big and A League of Their Own. And when she died, I wrote an essay about how she made an impact in my life based on her role as Laverne, who had chutzpah and who had a lot of sass. And so I was a little late because in the news cycle, when a celebrity dies, the timing is fast to get published. And so I missed that news cycle. But what I did, and I talk about how to do it in my book, including a mapping template of connecting yourself to things happening in the news, is I set up a Google alert for anything having to do with Penny Marshall. Lo and behold, in 2022, I received a Google notification that A League of Their Own was going to be a series on Amazon, a limited series uh, for A League of Their Own in Amazon Prime. And so I used that to frame my pitch to the editor at AARP, The Ethel, and I said, this is going to be in the news because this this is coming out in, in two months' time. See, I had the jump on it because of my Google alert. And I said, in addition, I wrote that. So I set, set up the relevance. And I said, in addition, I wrote an essay about how Laverne made an impact on my life in various ways and became my role model. And she said, absolutely send that to me. And I sent it to her. I changed it a bit and framed it. And yes, accepted it and it ran. So it ran for, what was it, four years later after Penny <laughs> Marshall died. Now, Estelle, I've noticed that um, you write a lot about your daughter. And it seems like yes. of, you've had three articles that really went viral. And two of them, I yes. think, were about her or in some way. Yes. Maybe. So yes. how do you handle the kind of privacy issues? Right. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up, Monica, because, <laughs> because uh, and I'm very big on privacy and I do talk about it, you know, what to reveal, how to conceal. Uh, I do talk about that. I also have a, an episode on freelance writing direct on that. 
And um, my daughter is a teenager now. And so the ball game is different. When she was a little bit younger, um, my husband was the one that I would run things by. And I mean, my daughter was like, yeah, you know, you know, that's fine. You can write about me. Um, But I was careful, right? Like I, even though I came up in my second tier with bloggers, right? When I kind of left the field before I got into publishing again, I started out in the blogging world because I was in Listen to Your Mother and learned about blogging. And they were blogging about their families. And so I started blogging about my daughter and I created a blog called Musings on Motherhood and Midlife. And so I would write about her, but I wouldn't write about her in a way that I thought was very prevalent at the time with some of the earlier bloggers, which was my daughter is an idiot. My child is in, you know, is it's a pain in the butt. I hate them so much. I never did that. I would do it in a funny way. I wrote a piece about um, the for scary mommy of, uh, you know, how my daughter should be in the CIA because all these secretive things <laughs> happen in preschool. <laughs> you know, she she's not supposed to eat peanut butter, and yet somehow there's like a peanut. Like, how did that happen? Or, or the finger painting, and it mysteriously disappears. So I wrote it in a funny way. I liked doing that. I wrote about lies I told my daughter, you know, that Chuck E. Cheese was closed, you know, for vacation. <laughs> like, we're not going there. I told her once that she was allergic to chocolate because I didn't want her to be a chocoholic like I was. <laughs> so that's how I used to write about her. And then for um, the pieces that went viral, we were on vacation in Vermont and my daughter was acting up and she was just kind of melting down and her bedtime was a little bit different she was staying up late and so I wanted to get into the Washington Post and I started writing this piece and I called it my child uh, my daughter is out of control and I framed it in a different way though I framed it by saying um, she's doing this because she is watching me And I'm having a meltdown with the cable guy. I'm having a meltdown when someone cuts in front of me in traffic or when the PTA mom, you know, says, no, you have to bake a cake by yourself. And so I wrote it in that way. And so I kind of gave her a break because, yes, she's acting like that. But look, I need to work on myself. And here is how I'm going to do that. And that piece went viral. Well, Estelle, we're out of time. There's so much more to talk about because there is so much in this book that anyone who wants to be a writer, a published writer, or even wants to just improve their personal writing can get from it. But we're going to have to end oh, it now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Caroline, do you have a final quote for us? Yeah, it's, it's a quote for sure. I could, I could come up with anything. But uh, she says, look for patterns in storytelling that make it compelling. Either educate, entertain, or emotionally engage the reader with your writing. I think that's that's but says it all right there. I love it. And use alliteration while you're at it. <laughs> Yes, I love alliteration. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Estelle. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye, everybody.